Okay. If you would please take your seats and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. And I'll repeat what Daniel said last week. You will need your Bible. I will, we will post some things on the overhead. But uh, there's so much that uh, I won't be counting on that. So if you would please. And um, yes, so you're on, Jake. A reading from Ezra chapter 7, verses 21 through 28. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, one hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment, or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and to extend to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jake. Well, first of all, I want to thank um, the elders for asking me to, to preach. It's an honor, always an honor uh, and joy for me to preach uh, to you all in particular. And um, pray that even in my mm, changing state, that um, the word of God remains true, and I hope that as, as, we, uh, as we unfold Ezra, uh, these four chapters, that you will indeed receive from the Lord um, both instruction uh, <clears throat> and confidence in him. Um, as you, if you weren't here last week, <clears throat> Ezra, along with, <clears throat> along with the book of Nehemiah, <clears throat> Uh, tells us of some key events of the return of the Jewish people <clears throat> as they, or at least some of them, return from Babylon and the Persian Empire back to Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. I've really enjoyed studying uh, Ezra because I always love to study the Bible and I love history. So this really hits two of my favorite things to do. And um, <clears throat> in the book of Ezra, there are, are, are so many important themes emerge. And while it's a, a narrative, it's not 
a Pauline epistle. Uh, it's telling a story, but yet woven <clears throat> in that story are wonderful truths about God and about ourselves as well. And uh, <clears throat> it's, um, it's, it's a historical account, uh, an account, but it's not hard to see them. It records God's gracious dealings with um, a very undeserving people. Uh, that encourages me. I hope that encourages you. God gives grace to the undeserving, uh, which is all of us in this room. And, um, and we also see the sovereign hand of God over nations and kings and emperors. Um, and that is comforting uh, to us, especially in the, in the days in which we live. I, I believe there's no other time in my life to be comforted by the fact that God is ultimately in charge over kings and rulers and senates and house of representatives, whoever, uh, over um, foreign nations. God is sovereign over them. And that means that we as Christians, we don't despair, but we have hope. In the, and it also demonstrates that God is sovereignly at work during difficult times, even in our own personal lives as well, not just nationally. It elevates the Word of God to its rightful place in our lives, um, <clears throat> that it should be in our lives, especially during, again, difficult and confusing times. It is the Bible that gives us, um, uh, it orients us, gives us the right perspective, and enables us, if we will hear it and apply it, to be successful as God would deem success in our lives. And so as we come to this part of the, of the passage, uh, the first six chapters, we saw the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel and others who'd come back. Uh, <clears throat> and, but this time, uh, while buildings are nice and uh, cities are good, we had the rebuilding of the city of, of, of Jerusalem, which we'll see more in the book of Nehemiah. Um, um, it's the people of God that need to be built, not just buildings and not just cities. We've got a lot of beautiful buildings and a lot of big and beautiful cities, but they're in desperate condition because of the condition of men's hearts. So we're going to talk today um, about rebuilding a covenant people. Rebuilding a covenant people, not just rebuilding the temple, not just building walls, which you'll see, but building a covenant people. And I think that we can all relate, in some sense, to the Jews in exile. I try to continually, and I encourage you to do this as well, is to put yourself in their place and try to experience and some, at least be able to, to sympathize with what they were up against and what they were doing and what, uh, um, uh, what their challenges were. Because they were exiles. They had been exiled to, to Babylon, and now they're returning exiles. And there's a, that word exile, we find it in the New Testament, don't we? Peter describes Christians as elect exiles. We are strangers in some sense on this earth. We're just passing through. This world is not our home, the old gospel song says. We're just passing through. And so um, he is... We are, in that sense, we are strangers in a strange land. And we all feel that. It seems like it's getting stranger and stranger, doesn't it? We are definitely strangers, but God. 
even though things aren't good or difficult in their time as well as ours, but God. But God is with us. And um, what we'll learn today is that God will have a people. Uh, and we can identify with that. Again, First Peter says, once you were not a people, I think one of the prophetic words dealt with not being, now you are the people of God. And so, um, but when God calls the people, he calls them to himself by grace, through faith, toward holiness. When God calls the people, he calls them to himself by grace, through faith, and toward holiness. Holiness will be one of the main uh, themes that we will see in our text today. Before I begin any further, or go any further, let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we don't come to you as a matter of ritual or formality. We come to you this morning because we desperately need to hear your voice. We confess that we do not know how to live our lives well unless you tell us through your word and by the Spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would grant to us today ears to really hear what you've said and grant to us by your grace and ability and heart to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, again, our text today, Ezra 7, uh, this is where Ezra actually comes on the scene. We've got six chapters, excuse me. We have six chapters in the book of Ezra, and we haven't met Ezra yet. So Ezra comes on the scene. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Syriah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, and the son of Zadok, son of Aetub, Aetub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriath, son of Zerariah, this is getting boring, son of Uzi, son of Bucky, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And so, uh, historically, probably, there's much about the chronology of these events that are hard to decipher at times, but probably this is some 60 years after the, after the end of chapter 6. So between chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, uh, decades have passed. And while we had the rebuilding of the temple uh, in chapter 6, we had the first, uh, well, the first in many years, Passover celebrated in Jerusalem uh, at the end of chapter 6. Now some, some uh, 58 or 60 years by most accounts, would say, have passed. And a whole series of different uh, uh, Persian emperors, kings, Cyrus is long gone, and we're all the way down to uh, Artaxerxes. And so Ezra comes on the scene, and, and who is Ezra? So the first, well, I should have given you a point. So we're going to talk about uh, 
uh, Ezra's mission uh, to the returning exiles. The second point will be the condition of the returning exiles. And three will be the repentance of the returning exiles. And so uh, let's consider uh, Ezra's mission uh, to the returning exiles, which will include uh, most of chapter 7 and, and part of 8. So Ezra, who was Ezra? Well, we're told by his, that all those names are there for a reason. They're connecting him back to the high priest. And so the priesthood are those who are descendants of Aaron. And um, in some sense, he's establishing his credentials, uh, that, that those uh, the, the exiles, as he returns with them, will know that he's not just anybody who's appointed himself, but that he is, in fact, a priest uh, of the lineage of Aaron. And, um, and secondly, he is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Look at, look at verse 6, the first part of, of verse 6. <clears throat> uh, he was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, of, Lord God of Israel had given. And so he was skilled at this. He was a man of lineage. He was a man of skill with respect to the law of God. And he was, a, he was no doubt a man of some prominence and influence because the king, as we saw, granted him all that he asked. Now we'll learn later this is primarily due to the hand of God being on Artaxerxes, uh, but it's also uh, somehow uh, Ezra had a hearing. He was a man probably of some prominence, and God chose him. God can use people of prominence, and he can use uh, people of no prominence. If you just look at Elijah, um, you know. So he is a man who is, uh, <clears throat> who is fit for the job that God had called him to do. Now, what's that job? What is the nature of the commission uh, is that, that, that Ezra has. And so um, the first thing I, point I would make there, the nature of the commission, would be to make sure that the worship of God or Yahweh, I'm going to use the word Yahweh because of the covenant name of God, that the worship of Yahweh is proper. That things, evidently he had perhaps had heard uh, rumors or reports that things weren't going well uh, after these 60 or 50 or 60 years had passed. And so he, he wanted to make sure that it was done well. If you look at verse, uh, look at verse 14, um, I think we have that. <clears throat> For this is part of, of uh, the letter that Artaxerxes uh, gave to Ezra. He says, you are sent by the king and his seven counselors uh, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold you shall find uh, in the whole province of Babylonia, and the freewill offerings of the people and the priest, vowed willingly uh, for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and with grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of God, uh, altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. 
the vessels that have been given to you are for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to, to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. So this very generous uh, offer by Artaxerxes to actually uh, fund and, uh, uh, and to ensure that the worship of God is done right. Now we're going to hear later, as we will we'll probably reference some to Malachi, that their offerings weren't good. Uh, there are things taking place that shouldn't take place. And so the worship of Yahweh was his first priority. Secondly, he was to appoint uh, magistrates and judges according to the law of Moses. Look at verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. So he's given extensive authority. Um, his authority is different than the ruler who will be Nehemiah. Ezra is a priest, and he's trying to ensure that um, the law of Moses is being put into effect with respect to uh, making judgments and judging people and situations. So that's, 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 that's two. The third thing uh, is to teach and apply the law of Moses to Jerusalem and all Judea. Look at the end of verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, um, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he, he was to teach. So I got the wrong reference in my, in my notes. I'm sorry. But he is to teach. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. <clears throat> so he's being commissioned to ensure worship, to appoint judges, and to teach the law of God. Now, it's interesting what verse 7 uh, verse 10 says, he had set his heart to study the law of God. Now, we can draw great examples for this. All of us here should be setting our heart to know what God's word says. It's critical to us. And, but it's not only that. He says not to, 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 to study the law of God and to, uh, to do it, to obey the law of God. And he had set his heart to teach it. So again, as we also read in the New Testament, we see the same set of, of, of hearts, if you will, by Jesus and the apostles. And we live in an age uh, where entertainment reigns supreme. And it's affected the church and churches and their worship services. And preachers have become entertainers. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's not the exposition of the Word of God to promote holiness that controls the preaching, but rather it is to entertain, if you will, even worldly Christians. It promotes the disposition by the congregation to tend to sit back and watch the show, relax, lean back, enjoy. You know, low lights, you know, I don't, I don't I mean to critique other churches, but, but um, smoke and mirror, all the stuff that goes with that, to me is um, missing the point. I'm not saying it's necessarily sinful, but it, it, but it devalues your participation. We should not be those who lean back 
And what we are those who lean forward. We have our Bibles in our hands. We're taking notes because hopefully the preacher will say something noteworthy. And if he doesn't, maybe the Lord will actually bring something to you that is noteworthy. So we are those who don't lean back. We are those who lean forward into God's word. And um, again, uh, Ezra becomes an example for those, especially those who would be leaders and teachers of God's people. Now, how did the people respond to this invitation? Um, well, we, are, we, we know that uh, God moved on people. Um, and we, we see in um, uh, even the encouragement in, Art, in Artaxerxes' letter, he says, uh, I, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors. So, uh, so it was open invitation, whosoever will. Now we know that the actual number of people that went was much smaller than there were exiled Jews in Babylon. Many of them, after all these years, have become actually successful and built their homes there. And so really just a fraction probably came back. We don't know that for sure. But we do know, according to Ezra 1.5, that then it says that then rose up the heads of the fathers of houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So we know, we know that God was at work, not only in Ezra, not only in Nehemiah, but God was, or not only in, in, in Artaxerxes, but God was at work in the people. We should be those kinds of people that are open to God, to directing us to make even extreme sacrifice on his behalf. And we often think that that's maybe perhaps limited to going to foreign lands to participate in foreign missions. And while we should do that, and we pray that God would raise up um, those that would do that. We already have some, of course, that have. We have Jeff and Candace Walton are in Korea now, and, and we have um, uh, the Slacks of uh, Missy in, in Guatemala. And so we know that God has stirred hearts, but we must not limit it to that. Uh, we should be those that are willing to make those same kinds of sacrifices um, wherever God has called us. It is the house of the Lord as to what we're, we're called. Um, and it is Jesus Christ and his church uh, to, to whom we're called. And so let our sacrifice, let God stir us up, even wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Now, as we end, uh, look at, at chapter 7, um, there's a lot of preparation um, uh, that that went into that went into this 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 journey back. This some it took them four months to walk from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's probably some four or five hundred miles straight, but they had to go with somewhat circuitous route, and um, it was a, it wasn't an easy thing. They were asking people to do, full of danger, on the way, and so uh, there's a response required of the people. Also. Uh, one of the priorities that Ezra had was a selection of priests and Levites. That's connected to the mission, which was ensure the proper worship of Yahweh 
and the teaching function of the priest and the Levites as well. And so we see in chapter 8, um, there are, we have a list of the people who's, who, who, who were called to go. And chapter 7 says, he went and he went to Jerusalem. And then the rest of, se- or the rest of 7 and 8 are the backstory how he got there. And so he, 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 uh, he prayed for leading men. He prayed for uh, and asked for Levites to come as well. And uh, again, having to do with the priority of the worship of God. Uh, again, Ezra is not just going of his own accord. He is going at the command of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, at what, and we see that and what, and we heard that and what Jake read to us when he makes his decree. Now, let's see if we say this about Artaxerxes. I doubt that Artaxerxes cared a lot about the worship of God in Jerusalem, uh, but the Persian policy was different, sig- different significantly from that of the Babylonian. Babylonians kind of did away with their worship, took people out, moved to, 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 to different places, um, and uh, to disperse. Uh, the Persians had a different view. They wanted the people to, to uh, under their own, whoever they were worshiping, that, that, that people would be probably at peace in that. And it, it's, it, it helped to quell unrest uh, in different places. And so we see that... that <clears throat> Um, that the commission that he gives to Ezra, and he sends him with a lot of gold, he's well-funded, and he is likely that he believed that this was in his interest, that the political stability could be established. Look at verse 23. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So it's kind of for his own good that he does it. And yet, it's exactly what God wanted done. Because the most important person in the commissioning of Ezra is not Ezra, is not Artaxerxes, it is God himself. It's God himself. And, um, um, and it was the God, he says, and look at, at verse 6, uh, when he says that the king granted him all that he asked for, he says, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now Ezra and Nehemiah repeat this. The good hand of the Lord was on us. It was God's favor. It was God's grace. It was God moving that caused this, this, this venture to have any kind of success at all. And, um, and in, verse, in verse 27 and 28 of, of, of Ezra 7, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Ezra recognizes this wasn't it wasn't Ezra's great skill in convincing him. It was that God had put this into his heart to beautify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. It says it wasn't because Ezra was skilled or had, had that kind of influence. He had some, but it was because God extended to him his steadfast love. Um, and in front of the king and his counselors and his mighty officers, he says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Remember, 
Important thing, write it down. God is the hero of every text in the Bible. God is the hero of every text, every story. God is the hero. And we keep him there. Um, it is the good hand of the Lord that we need every day, don't we? It is the good hand of the Lord that ensured Ezra's success. And it is the good hand of the Lord that will ensure our success in building the people of God in this church, extending by, 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 uh, by going outside of these walls and bringing people in is the good hand of the Lord. And he is with you. He's promised to be with you. That gives us confidence, doesn't it? That our success is not determined by all of our skills, but it's determined by the good hand of the Lord. So, that is the commission. That is the mission. Secondly, let's look at the condition of the returning exiles. Now, there's a lot of practical needs here. You can read about them in chapter 8. He needed leaders. He needed finances. He needed priests. Uh, and we see that uh, priests are sent. Um, uh, again, having to, having to do with a mission of worship. And, uh, and, he, and actually, the, the priesthood was there in particular, uh, one of the responsibilities, because they were now given all of these vessels that were taken out of the temple. And Ezra, I think, wants to make sure that it's the priests who are in charge of those things. Because, and he says, um, it's, look in, verse, in, in, eight, in chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. See, priests were set apart, holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priest and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. And so the priest and the Levites took over the weight of silver and gold to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And... Um, uh, they entrusted that to the priest. Now they had they had practical needs. We see the finances involved here, the the vessels that were related to the worship of Yahweh within the temple, and they needed safe travel as well. And so, at the end of uh, Ezra chapter eight, verse twenty-one, he says they're at the river Ahava, which is just kind of north and west of what is now what is now Baghdad. Uh, that's where they gathered at the, at the river. And he says, I proclaimed a fast there that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him, seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our, our God is good is for good for all those who seek him and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. Uh, kind of an interesting little note there. You know, I gave this great sermon to Artaxerxes, told him how great our God was, he'd take care of us, and we got ready to go. He's going, um, I don't want to go back. I, I look stupid now. I would be embarrassed to ask him. So, so he says, we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Um, that sometimes we do that, don't we? We, we, we? we talk about the promises of God, and then suddenly 
uh, we're going, whoa, what have, I, what have I gotten myself into here? So, so, so he needed, he had these practical needs. But let me talk about the spiritual needs of these returning, um, <clears throat> returning exiles. Try to put yourself in the place of these exiles. Everything they had ever known, all their, uh, all the, many, so many people were killed. They, they were starved to death. All you have to do, and my, my reading, our, my reading I, I use the McShane plan to read, but I've just been, I've been to Jeremiah and Lamentations of Ezekiel for months and months. And, you know, if you think it was just some small thing happened when the Babylonians invaded, you'd be mistaken. Just read that. They were devastated. They were, I, mean, I, won't, I wouldn't even want to say all that they went through. From cannibalism, they're, they're starving, um, they're, they're killed. Uh, uh, and so their whole lives have been torn apart. And God had, God had punished them for their idolatry. And they were, I think above all things, they were disillusioned. It's in their disillusionment that they begin to also much more susceptible and tempted to sin because of that kind of disillusion. And, you know, a couple hundred years before this, Isaiah the prophet had prophesied, had prophesied certain things that would be fulfilled in their lifetime. And, I mean, he, he called Cyrus by name a long time before um, Cyrus comes on the scene. Uh, but in Isaiah chapter 40, one of those beautiful verses, he's talking to them about how great God is. And then in, uh, in verse 27, he says this very poignant thing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? That's what they were feeling. God, he says, God doesn't know. My way's hidden from the Lord. I mean, he doesn't even know who I am anymore. And that's what they were saying. He's responding to that. Or my right is disregarded by God, which means he didn't really care. So they were tempted to think he didn't see, he couldn't see, or he didn't care. And so he speaks to them those wonderful words that, you know, we, we get the second part of this. Um, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those words were spoken by Isaiah some 200 years before to these people that thought that God, they were saying to themselves, he doesn't care or he doesn't see. That's what disillusionment will do. It stamps you in such a way. Let me just, just say that you know, as has already been commented on, uh, I'm old. It wasn't said exactly that way, but... <laughs> and you can tell I'm old, so no surprise there. 
But I, I once was young and now I'm old. And um, disillusionment will come to all of you. Or at least disappointment will. Whether or not you can become disillusioned by it is another thing. And especially even, we have such high expectations. When I was a young man, I was first a pastor in 1977, I was full of idealism about what the church should be and, um, and had really high and lofty thoughts about that and preached sermons like that. Um, only Gary Rule would have heard any of those, but we, and Elaine, we had such high expectations. But so many times over these last 40 years or 45 years, I have been disappointed. And if you're a young person here, you're going to see disappointment. Maybe in the failure of a church in some way. Maybe the failure of a leader in a church. A prominent pastor or a Christian leader. And we hear of those things. And you're discouraged by that. And you can be tempted to go, I don't don't want to do this anymore. You know, I don't want to, you know, maybe you didn't give up on God, but you gave up on everybody else. And um, I just want to encourage you, don't do that. Don't be those who when even prominent leaders and people that you know, maybe it's a moral failing of some way. Um, God remains the same. God remains the same. And he works through fallible people and people sin. People mess up. And churches aren't perfect. You know, this is not uh, Cornerstone Fellowship Utopia here. This is, there's no utopias anywhere. And just as a young person, strengthen yourself with the Lord. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on his people. Don't give up on his church. Oh, just a little, in the old days I would walk around the side and say that to you and point at you, but that ship sailed, so. Okay. And there were other things that they were doing. They, they had a lot of issues. When you, I'll just read you just a few from the book of, of Malachi. <clears throat> Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, probably written around this time or maybe slightly after. We don't know for sure, it doesn't say. But... Here's the things they were doing, and marriage to idolaters is one of them, but it's, it's down the list of ways. He says, first of all, they were making sinful offerings, the priests and Levites were. And Malachi 1, 6 and 7 says, as, as a, a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By polluting, by offering polluted food upon my altar. That's why all this concern about animal, you know, getting it right. They were to give the very best. They were to take the best of the flock. They were to take the best of their grain and offer that. Instead, they were giving them rotten and spoiled, making those kind of sacrifices. This is going on in Israel at this time. Also, there were false teachings by the priests. And so I believe, I believe Ezra is motivated to, uh, uh, to, to correct that and to teach the, the word of God as he should. In, verse, in chapter 2 of Malachi, says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from, 
from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of, the, of, of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I will make you a despised and a debased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And there's others that in chapter 3, how have you robbed God? You fail to give tithes. When you fail to give tithes in those days, it meant the Levites had to go to work and they couldn't, they're to be supported by the other tribes in, in order, for the other people, in order that they're free to teach the word of God and minister to the Lord and care for people. And when they fail to tithe, uh, the, the mission of God is being, is being um, uh, undermined. And finally, um, let's look at chapters 9 and 10, the repentance of the exiles. And so let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they had taken some of their daughters to be wives, uh, wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So this is what Ezra... Now, I don't know what he's been doing all these months. I think he's been traveling around, securing cooperation from, people, from officials in the provinces, showing his letter. Perhaps he's begun to teach, but suddenly it comes to his attention that, um, that, the, that the law of God, God concerning who you could marry is being violated. And, um, and uh, understand, this is not a racial issue. It's not an ethnic issue. I think Daniel referenced this last week. This is, uh, this is a religious issue. It's they were marrying people who worship other gods. That's a problem. That's a big problem. We'll get more to that later. But, but let's look at Ezra's response in, in, uh, in verse 3 of Ezra 9. As soon as I heard this, now I'm sure you all do this all the time, so I want you to be encouraged. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose to my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Ezra hears this and he is undone. He, he tears his hair out of his head. I've heard it makes you want to pull your hair. I think this may be where it came from. You get a different response, by the way, from Nehemiah. He pulled their hair out. He pulled their beards out. Ezra... Ezra at least kept it to himself. <clears throat> I'll let whoever got, preaches that text deal with that issue. However, um, Ezra understands immediately the magnitude of what he's just heard. He knows that 
that, that, that people broke, had broken faith with Yahweh again. He knows that the nation is now under the judgment of God. And all that's been accomplished for the last 50 plus years is now at stake. After the horror of the Babylonian destruction described in Nehemiah Lamentation to Ezekiel, I think he must have been dumbstruck to think that as bad as it was, worse could happen now. And so he tore his garments and pulled out his own hair. Uh, he, had, he had a reaction, a visceral reaction to sin. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Religious Affection, says this, True religion, in great part, consists of holy affections towards sin. When he says affections, he means reactions and emotions and thinking. Religious affections, uh, he says, true religion consists in holy affections towards sin. That is, we hate it. It's not just, oh, we don't just look, overlook it. It's okay. Uh, everybody messes up. I mess up. You're easy on yourself. You're easy on other people. Uh, no, don't do that. Ezra was affected, and he cried out to God. Look at his prayer, beginning in verse 6. Well, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to save time and not do that. Um, let me just say this. Here's what Ezra's prayer looked like. It had a number of elements in it, so I'm going to list them to you. And I do that because it would be good for you to perhaps incorporate these in your own prayer life. Um, because I think, I think Ezra's prayer is somewhat of a model for us. First of all, he's contrite. He's not angry or angry at God. Uh, he's embarrassed. You know, in verse 6, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He had, and so he is contrite and even embarrassed before the Lord. Um, secondly, he identified with the sins of his people. He doesn't go before God and immediately start blaming the guilty. Now, they get their names in the Bible forever, you know, in chapter 10, but he doesn't go before God with that. He identifies with them. There's no record of Ezra sinning, but he says in verse 10, we have forsaken your commandments. Or verse 6 and 7, our guilt, our iniquities. <clears throat> and, in, and, and he paraphrases and is specific when he, when he, when he repents. He says, you, you told us in Deuteronomy you know, chapter 7, he didn't say that exactly, he quotes it there, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. He would destroy you quickly. Ezra, I think, is a good model for us. And with respect to national sins, um, I think those are tricky, they're complicated. But God does deal with nations. God judges nations. He has historically. I have a category for that. God could judge this nation. God were to judge us just solely on the basis of the, the national sins, whether it be slavery and segregation or abortion and all of the 
sexual perversion that we're seeing today, if God were to judge us, um, and we may in fact be under his judgment now, at least in part, but we should pray and we should, we should repent. We say, well, I didn't do any of those things. I know you didn't. And nobody's blaming you and saying you did. I'm just saying there's a sense in which Ezra identified with the people and because it's complicated. We're a part, we're a part of a culture and it really gets tied together. I don't mean to wax political there at all. I just want you to think about that when you pray for our country. <clears throat> next he says, next I'd say, he refuses to make little of their sin or excuse for it. He's very clear. He rightly confesses that God would be just to destroy the nation in verse 15. <clears throat> and so those are components. He's contrite. He identifies with the sins of his people. Um, he refuses to make little of it or say it's not important. He confesses that God would be right to destroy their nation. And then finally, the entire prayer is a plea for mercy. It's casting himself on God uh, and the nation upon God's mercy. Verses 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that God may brighten your eyes and grant us a little reviving for our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and give protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 13 says, you've punished us less than we deserve. We punished us less. How many people can identify with that? You've been punished less than you deserve. Now, you should all raise your hand because that's true. Even the discipline of the Lord. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God, tells the congregation, there are people in hell right now who deserve it less than you. When you think about it and frame it that way, that's, a, that's just a little scary, isn't it? But God has treated us better than we deserve. And, and, but we cannot presume that God will not discipline us. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's in the New Testament. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. A defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. And J.C. Ryle finally says, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. If we're going to come before our God and pray, let's pray like this. We will confess our sins. We'll be specific. We'll recognize that God is gracious. And we pray that he will continue to extend mercy to us. Well, the response in, in Israel uh, in chapter 10, the people confessed their sins. You know, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And they determined, they repented and determined they would obey God. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of this land. But even now there is hope 
for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong to do it. So then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would have been um, to do as they had said. So they took the oath. Now I want to go back to the situation. It's, it, it's abhorrent to us, to people, to put away wives and children, and we shouldn't. This law was pertaining to Israel under the Old Covenant. Um, in, the new, in, the, in the New Covenant, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't put them away. Uh, by them are your children, or by you are the, your children made holy. Uh, and but he says, but if you do marry, if you're not married and you do marry, marry in the Lord. Young people out here, marry in the Lord. You may find the nicest looking guy, the best looking woman, smart, incredibly wealthy, all of that. If they don't have the Lord in their lives, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to compromise at some point. That was the issue here, was that they, the foreign wives represented idolaters. Because we know that even in the lineage of our Lord, according to the flesh, David, uh, Ruth, we just studied the book of Ruth, she was a Moabite. But she was a Moabite who worshipped Yahweh. Rahab was a Canaanite harlot. And she is in the lineage of our Lord as well, of David as well, because she turned to, to serve the living God. And Daniel, note, I think noted last week, but look at Ezra 6.21, says, as they get ready to have the meal, the Passover, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So it wasn't a racial issue. It was a matter of, it was a religious issue. Those who turned to the Lord, to the Lord. And we only have, we always have the, listen, it doesn't matter. You can be the smartest guy in the world. Example, exhibit A, Solomon. Solomon really was. Now God gifted him with all of his brilliance, and he wrote parts of the Bible. Great king. The nation expanded to its greatest, probably geographical limits under King Solomon. But king Solomon had 700 wives, idolaters, and they turned his heart, and he did not finish well. He did not finish well. And if it could happen to Solomon, it could happen to you. Now, in conclusion, let me say, how we respond to the trials in our life, whether they be trials of the discipline of the Lord or the disillusionment, um, the temptation to sin, um, how we respond in the midst of adversity is determined by how we engage God. If we engage God in faith, in obedience to his word, as Ezra and Nehemiah and many others did, or do, we, or do we leave God 
or just slowly marginalize God and his word and, and the church. Don't let that happen. Let us be those who continue in faith so that the good hand of our God might be upon us. Amen. That's what we learn from Ezra today. Let's pray and the worship team can come. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as a grateful people, people to whom you've extended so much grace, been so merciful. This is the older we get, the more sins we have, you know, just, and yet, Lord, you have been with us, and you've been with each, of, I, mean, I mean that individually you've been with us, and you've been with us as a church. And Father, as we consider um, the lessons from Ezra, we pray that we will be people of the word. It will be people who are motivated by what your Bible, the Bible says rather than what our culture says around us. Or the way we were, we were raised, whatever our many times godless traditions of our elders are, let us, Lord, be motivated by your word to hear it and know what it says. These people had forgotten what it said or they didn't care any longer. That's what got them in trouble. But Lord, let us be. Help us, we pray. Grant us grace. That we, having begun well, would finish well. We'd be those who endure to the end and uphold your word and uphold your name and give glory to you. Lord, I pray, even as we consider, as we turn daily to confess our sins to you, I pray, O oh Lord, Will you be those who do that in faith? Contrite, owning it all, and depending on your mercy and grace, for you have promised that you would give it. Make us, Lord, a repentant people, for repentance is a result of your kindness. It's in your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so may, may repentance flourish in our own hearts and in our church. We would be those, again, upon whom your hand has rested. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.